0: Acts chapter 6 is where I want to turn our attention to this evening, and in Acts chapter 6, again, the major theme is unity. Uh, There are some secondary themes that we'll get into, themes like change, themes like growth, but you'll see if you read the first few verses of Acts chapter 6 that there is a strong sense of uh, a message of unity, everything they're doing is about unity, and it's probably a message from that is more for today than it ever has been. We must be unified. It's the will of God that the church be unified. I've ministered about it in the months uh, past. We spent some time in the book of Daniel. I just want to go on the record and tell you that uh, we're entering uncharted waters. The world has changed. I know I'm telling you things that you probably already know, but I hope that in our setting that we're in, in the house of the Lord together... You can add some spiritual dimensions to what you already know to be true. The world is not what it used to be. And we are living in a world where we are quickly becoming the minority. Uh, just along the lines of faith, among those who just profess any kind of Christianity whatsoever, are becoming the minority in this country. And the word we use to describe that during our teachings the last couple of months, is the same word that the Apostle Peter used. He described it as Babylon. Babylon. Uh, we are living in a modern type of Babylon. And we have new challenges coming at us that we've never had before. Many people that profess Christ in, many, in different parts of the world have lived in nations and in scenarios where they've been in the minority for many years. And they know how to navigate the dynamics that come along with not being a Christian-majority nation. We in North America, we don't know anything about that. Ever since the pilgrims landed here, we commemorate that next week, Thanksgiving, but ever since the pilgrims landed here, we've been a majority Christian nation, at least professing Christian. We have Judeo-Christian values. Our country was built on those kind of values. But we are quickly entering an age where that is no longer the case. And it's not enough just to simply acknowledge that as a fact. And I know we did just a moment ago. There was an amen in the room. But we have to change some of the ways that we do things as a result of changing environments. We don't change the message. We don't change our mission. But some of our methods are going to have to adapt. Some of our way of living has to adapt. And I just want to go on the record before we launch into Acts chapter 6 to tell you that I know it may feel like, I know we're not in the book of Daniel anymore, but we're still very much in the same vein. We need to look to the book of Acts to show us how to live in an environment like the one we're entering into in the world today. There's many takeaways that we can have from a passage like this. And so you can file this under um, how to be uh, afflicted yet fruitful. That's uh, a way that the Bible said it, afflicted yet fruitful. The church can go through times of persecution. The church can live in a Babylon type of society and still be fruitful. This is not the time to wring our hands and say, what are we going to do? Are we going to start going backwards? Is the church going to take a hit? As the the world becomes darker, the church is just going to shine all the more. It's going to be a beautiful church. The church is going to be beautified in ways that it never had, that we've never seen it in our lifetime, because there is going to be such a contrast between the direction that the world is going and the direction that the church is going. So I want to turn your attention to the Word of the Lord, Acts chapter six. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. You can keep your seat. Uh, this was Monday's reading on our plan. Uh, this is Acts chapter six in the New King James Version, and. Uh, As the word of God is being preached, there's new conditions that are being created, and this passage is about unity, and it's about change. Let's read it together, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint or grumbling, murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, so they got everybody together, the whole church, everybody that they could uh, rally together, and they said, "...it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5 says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread or increased, and the number of the apostles, disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I want to minister from that passage and teach for a little while about spread the word. Spread the word. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, Spread the word. Spread the word. Spread the word. Now, here's something I, I, someone told me a long time ago, and I've always, uh, I've, I've always remembered it because it, it makes a lot of sense to me. They told me, and it was good advice, they said, you need to stay flexible or you're going to get bent out of shape. Sister Amy Brother Sample told me that. I was probably doing something ignorant, something I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe I was upset about something else someone else was doing. I don't know. But he told me at one point, you better just, just stay flexible or you're going to get bent out of shape. Getting bent out of shape's not, it's not good. Uh, When I say get bent out of shape, it means you you get upset about things, and there's some things worth getting upset about, but listen, everything's not worth getting upset about. And so, we live in a culture that they feed off of outrage. I mean, it's like, you know, it's ridiculous. It's, you know, before they start the news at night, you know, they could say, you know, uh, people are mad. Find out why at five. Uh, You know? That's it. And then you're mad. Anyways, adapt. There's times in life when we have to adapt. Um, Let me give you an example. When a young couple gets married, when they they get married, there's new conditions that that are formed. Right? Being single is not the same thing as being married. Can we agree? Can we amen? All right. Now, when this young couple gets married, the people are the same, the voices are the same, the personalities are the same, but the conditions are different, so arrangements have to change. And what was once a bachelor pad has to get cleaned up, there has to be some actual decorations that are put up, uh, what was, for both people, uh, largely a self-centered uh, I'm just worried about me, and that's not self-centered in a negative way. It's just like, I'm just worried about me. I, I, I don't really have to worry about uh, a partner right now, and that's the approach to life, and that's perfectly okay because that is a valid season of life. But when the season changes and the conditions change, and now all of a sudden you're a married person, these two become one, and the conditions are different, and now whatever goals you had as a single person gets morphed into your goals as a married couple, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? So your dreams may be the same, but the specifics of how that dream is living itself out, the mechanics of how it actually works, might change and have to adapt. Then, as time goes on, a lot of times, a husband and wife will have a baby. And when there's a new baby in the picture, especially if it's the first time you've had a baby, Everything changes. Now, all of a sudden, you have a room that is dedicated to this small human being. This small human being is getting more square footage dedicated to them than everybody else in the house, maybe combined. The conditions are different, and so the arrangements have to change. All right? The the people are the same, the personalities are the same. There's many things that remain the same. But when this one factor is changed, things have to adapt along with it. Because when the baby comes along here, I've, this is lived experience, and you, you, all, many of you can identify with this. There's no more like just getting up off the couch and saying, let's go somewhere. Now there's like a literal carload of stuff. You all should have seen us the Williams tribe, going to youth camp for two weeks. It's easy to pack for youth camp. Just pack everything you own. Just pack it all. You taking that? Yes, take it. We might need it. You just pack it all. When it's just two of you, it's, you know, you're just like, just pack a change of clothes. Let's go. We'll buy something when we're there if we need to. It ain't like that when the kid comes along, this little eight-pound human being. It's ridiculous, but it's the way it is. We may, listen, the people are the same. We may go to the same places. We just don't do it the same way we used to. Now, when the husband and wife go from two kids to three kids, there's some changes that have to happen. Because no longer can you play man-to-man defense. You have to expand to a zone defense, okay, because you're outnumbered. And once again, the conditions are different, and things have to change. Now, this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not coming down on anybody that's got one or two kids, but I'm just here to tell you that three is where it changes. Three is where it changes. And then after that, you know, we've already gone to a zone defense. We've already thrown away the old playbook. We've already gone to the new one. I mean, I know there's a difference, but it's like, let's just go. I'm going to tell you something that happened. And then I'm going to go and then I'm going to get out of get out off the topic. But I'm I'm painting the picture because I'm going somewhere because much of what happens at home uh transfers over into church life and vice versa. There's just a lot of overlap. It helps us understand. The uh, the little guy that lives in our house, Abel, uh the man child. He um he is two years old now, and uh, for a long time, longer than he's aware, he's been able to get out of his little crib. Uh, it was just a matter of him figuring out that he could. And the other day, uh, we had put everyone to bed, and I was in our bedroom, and Ellie was still out in the other part of the house, and uh, I heard a thud coming from his room. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going on. I didn't hear anyone cry, crying. So, I mean, I'm like, I don't know what just happened. Maybe just like Ninja kicked the wall or something, I don't know. But it was a thud, and then I heard his door open. And then through my bedroom door, Brother D, I heard Ellie say, Bob, what are you doing? How did you get out of your bed? And I heard him say, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm like, I know how you did it. You climbed over that rail and bailed out. So now we're in the process, now the conditions have changed, okay? The game has changed, and so now the young man has to sleep in an actual bed, uh, which he's doing fine with. It's good, um, but now he can get up whenever he wants, Katrina. He can get up any he can get up anytime he wants, and uh, so now, like, the extra locks are going on the door. We have to have the little doorknob things uh, to where the guy can't turn, the, and we have to put the gate up so he can't just have, if he does get up in the middle of the night and we don't hear it, he doesn't have free reign of the whole house. Um, it, it, it's, just, it's just different. And so the condition, all the people are the same in this story, but the conditions, Brother Jake, are different. Just come to my house for a little while, and you'll, find, you'll, you'll see this in action. And all conditions in life that are new require new arrangements, new care, and new thought. I, we've got a camera in the little guy's room. My kids are sick, so they're not here. But we've got to, we had to put a camera. That's the other thing. We had to put a camera in his room. And so we've got a camera in there, and I'm able to open it up on my phone. Well, I opened it up on my phone earlier just to see who's in his room doing something. And Ellie's on the floor taking his crib apart. She's taking his crib apart and uh, packing it up so that we can... We can... And, and, and that's the way life is. That's the way life at home is. That's the way life in the church is. That's just the way all every, uh, every sphere of life is. And the church is founded on the Word of God. It is absolutely central. Uh, when the word of God is increased, as it is in this story in Acts chapter 6, uh, then when the word of God is increased and in spread, the church grows and multiplies like it should. Uh, when the word of God is contained or confined, the church's growth is severely slowed or sometimes stops entirely or stops going, starts going backwards. And the church's mission of multiplication is not accomplished when the word doesn't increase when it isn't allowed to increase when we don't make the adjustments to what we 're doing so that the word can t- continue to increase like Acts chapter six verse six and seven says so it bears the reason that when the church uh, that the church has to prioritize god's word increasing in every setting where we can have it if we're serious about multiplication if we're serious about the mission of the church, and the message of the church, then our methods for allowing God's word to spread have to accommodate any kind of circumstance. We have to be willing to be flexible and not get bent out of shape over it. We just have to roll with it. And in short, what that means is the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has to be taught, explained, declared, preached, discussed, debated, understood. We have to do all of those things, and we have to do it as much as possible. Because when the message is spread, that's how we multiply. When the Word of God increases, it causes our numbers to increase, and we are doing what God has called us and put us here to do. And so my whole point in saying that is to say that the method that we use to do that is subservient to the message and the mission. The message and the mission do not change. But from time to time, adjustments must be made to the method. Now, someone's thinking right now, oh, God, he's about to announce a change that I'm not going to like. And I'm not. That's not what this is about. I do not have an agenda. I'm not about to announce a new initiative. I don't have anything, uh, anything to to. Announced tonight or anything like that. But I do hope that as we look at this passage tonight, that it opens up your thinking and expands your horizons and makes you hungry to see multiplication happen, no matter what the cost is. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, spread the word. Now, Jerusalem is the setting. The church was still contained in Jerusalem. They hadn't expanded outside of Jerusalem yet in Acts chapter 6. It was largely confined just to Jerusalem. The church, however, uh, is still growing steadily. And uh, at times, rapidly, there's many people being added to the church. Growth had not stalled. It was ongoing. And Acts chapter 6 tells us an instance where Satan is trying to disrupt the inward peace of the early church. There is a complaint. A complaint. I joke sometimes. I used to joke when I was a youth pastor. I had t- one of them would come up and uh, start complaining to him. I said, all complaints have to be submitted in writing. And sometimes they would do that. Uh, sister courtney you know about that you I, I probably have a file uh that was just sister courtney tell, writing me things uh, i'm not picking on her she was she doesn't have a complaining spirit we just joke and kid around there was a complaint the nature of the complaint uh and the parties involved in the complaint should they tell us something about what's going on uh, there's two groups. There's Hebrews and Hellenists. If you got your Bible open, you can see it. There's Hebrews and Hellenists. Now, what does this mean? They're all Jews. Let me just clear that up immediately. They're all Jews. This is not divided along ethnic lines whatsoever. They're all Jewish people, uh, but it calls one group Hebrews and one group Hellenists. And the reason for that is there was a language divide. There was Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. And then there were pilgrims from other parts of the world who had come to visit or come to live in Jerusalem, and they largely spoke Greek. That's what Hellenist means. They were Greek-speaking because they had lived abroad for so long, they didn't speak primarily uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. They primarily spoke Greek. And so there was uh, ethnic unity. There, there was uniformity, at least. There was, they were all Jews, but they spoke different languages. And so there was a little bit of a divide between these two groups of people, and The complaint arises along this language divide, and uh, the the complaint is this. The Greek-speaking Jewish saints said that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of material goods to help them live. That was the complaint. Now, to what extent that was actually the case, we don't know. Sometimes perception is reality. I don't know. I don't know if there was actually any validity to this. There must have been at least a little, but how much, we don't know. But it did rise to the level where it got the attention of the 12 apostles. So it was becoming a bit of a stink. There was a murmur, there was a complaint, there was grievance. And so the grumbling was happening and had to be addressed. Now you have to respect, I just want to say, you have to respect Luke, who wrote Acts. You have to respect Luke as the historian, because Luke does not paint a picture of a perfect church. The church, sometimes it's easy to look back with nostalgia and and be like, boy, those were the good old days. The church has never been perfect. The church today is not perfect. And the church back then was not perfect. And that's important to recognize. There's always imperfections. There's always things that must be navigated. There's always, we might call them, growing pains involved. Yes. Yeah, anytime you get an organization of people together, you're going to have, you're going to have uh, tension. You're going to have disagreement. And that's, that's okay. We can remain unified in the face of disagreement. We do not have to be clones. We do not have to have, hold the same opinion on every topic. Uh, what unifies us is the infilling of the Holy Ghost, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. And that supersedes any differences we might have. And the differences that we might have that contradict the book the Spirit will take care of if we're genuinely being led by the Spirit. It will cause me to give up my preferences, my opinions, and, and look to the book instead, instead of mine. So you have to respect Luke as a historian. Uh, there, there's no false impression of a perfect church at all. And uh, there's difficulties today, and there were difficulties back then. But Acts chapter 6 in this passage gives us some apostolic principles. That we can use and apply in settings like this. And one of them is sometimes we have to change our methods. That's why Acts chapter 6, verse 2 says, When the apostles became aware of this complaint, here's what they did they summoned the multitude of the disciples, which is to say, they summoned everybody, the whole church, and they said, It's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. What that means is, there's clearly a problem, it needs to be addressed somehow. But if we go around putting out every fire and taking on every ministry initiative that needs attention, it's going to take away from the main thing. Everything can't be the main thing. This was not the main thing. The widows and and the daily distribution of stuff, important, has a place, not the main thing. And it is the wisdom of God on the apostles to recognize that and to say you know what my temptation anybody that's ever been a leader before anybody that's ever had any position of leadership at all on any level knows that sometimes it's just easier to do things yourself right sometimes it's just like get out of my way and let me just deal with it now you have to know the apostles are not superhuman they're made out of the same stuff as you and me you have to know there is a temptation in the apostles at this moment to do exactly what I just described. To say, you know what? We're already the clearly recognized leader in this situation. Just get out of my way. Let me sort this out. Let's just deal with it. But you know what? That would have drained their energy away from what they needed to be doing, which was the increase of the word and prayer. So when they said it's not good that we should leave The ministry of the word and go wait tables, that's not a haughty spirit. That's not a, this is below me type thing. That's not that at all. It's a recognition of if we go and do this, it is the main thing that is going to take the hit. And we can't allow something to get in the way of us doing the main thing. The church has to continue to multiply, and the way that the church multiplies is by the word continually increasing. And so they weren't going to let anything jeopardize that. Let me give you an example. There came a time in my time in ministry, living for the Lord, that I and, and this is true of everybody. I'll, I'll give a personal example and then I'll apply it broadly to everybody. There's many things around a church that I can put my time and attention into. Many things, many things. Take your pick, spin the wheel and just pick one. But you know what no one else can do for me? No, there's not a single other person in this room that can prepare my message for Sunday morning, except me. That's not a haughty attitude. It's just a fact. No one can put the time in the prayer room. Nobody can put the time studying in for me to stand up and preach on Sunday morning, except yours truly. That's just, that's just a slice of reality. And we can say that every single person in this room, without exception, that very thing is true about no one else can be dad to your children. No one else can be mom. No one, there's things you there are things in life that you cannot delegate out. You cannot outsource certain things. Everything else is up for debate. Everything else can be delegated out. If I have the bandwidth to take care of it, Sister Violet, I'll take care of it and attack it. But if it if it stands between me and being ready to stand up and preach the word on Sunday morning, then I'm going to have to either put it on hold, or I'm going to have to ask someone to take care of it for me. And that's just wisdom. And it's that way at home, too. It's that way with our, with our children. It's that way in our homes. It's that way in different dimensions of our life, maybe in your workplace. Maybe you're thinking of something in your vocation that matches that description right now, that it's just something that you cannot delegate out. It, ha- it requires your personal attention. And so that's what we see here when the, when the apostles say, It's not good that we go and serve tables and leave the ministry of the word because they were completely radically devoted to seeing the church multiply and grow. And so, as a result of that, the conditions in the church had changed. There was this murmur, there was this complaint, and it necessitated not a change in message, not a change in mission, but a change in method. There had to be a change in method. And so, Because the disciples were unwilling to subtract attention away from their time in prayer and in the word of God. They made the decision that day to call the church together and to make some appointments of people who would later be called deacons. These are people, uh, the the word in Greek is diakonos. And it just means servant. It just means servant. Uh, The the deacons, the, the men that they appoint here, the seven that they appoint here, are not less than the apostles. They're not. They're absolutely not. The apostles themselves are diakonos. They are servants, but they are servants who have been tasked with a particular thing. Their bandwidth is already spent. They have a finite amount of energy, and it's already spent and dedicated to this one thing that is absolutely essential. So they have to make some additional appointments of these diakonos, these servants, these people that meet the criteria of being full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom which is to say sanctified common sense, that they were able to place over this business, deal with it, and minister accordingly. So here's what they say in verse three. They said, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they picked out these seven guys, and then they they set them before the apostles. So the people picked out these people. These were not picked by the 12 apostles. They said, you all come together, sort it out, present seven names to us, and then we'll lay hands on them and ordain them and appoint them into these positions. And that's exactly what happened. It's worth noting that in this complaint, it was the Hellenists who were lodging the complaint, the Greek speakers, right? Everyone tracking with me? It's the Greek speakers who's lodging the complaint. And when the whole church gets together... The Greek-speaking people are tremendously outnumbered by the Hebrew-speaking people. That's why the complaint happened in the first place. They were in the minority. There wasn't as many Greek-speakers as there were Hebrew and Aramaic-speakers. But when everybody gets together, when the Greek-speaking church and the Hebrew-speaking church all get together and they say, we need to find seven guys to sort this stuff out, they pick out seven Greek guys. The Hebrew-speaking majority group picks out seven Greek guys. All the, all, how do I know that? Because they're all Greek names. Stephen is a Greek name. Nicholas is a Greek name. They're all Greek names. Isn't that amazing? You know what that tells me? It tells me what Brother Deaver said a moment ago. This is, this is a work of the Holy Ghost because that doesn't happen. You don't get a group of people together and they pick a completely unanimous Seven out of seven out of the minority to represent the whole group and solve the problem for the whole group. That's the Holy Ghost that does that. That is a group of people that are led by the Holy Ghost when that happens. And that's what keeps our unity intact. It's not whenever we come together and we try to say, you know what, I'm really going to apply my intellect to this problem. I'm really going to throw my shoulder and my physical strength into this problem. I'm really going to try to... no. It's whenever we come before God and we say, Spirit, what would you have us to do? And the Holy Ghost speaks, and we get a spiritual answer to a unity-threatening complaint. They delegated responsibility to these guys. The apostles refused the temptation to step in and do it themselves. They also refused to assign blame for the complaint. They just decided, we're going to do this. We're going to appoint these people. And there has to be leadership. There has to even be senior leadership and accountability, but there also, in the church, there must be account, uh, delegated responsibility to be about the work of the ministry without the constant and direct supervision by even the senior leadership. There has to be trust. There has to be delegated responsibility. It's the only way that multiplication continues. It's the only way. These are apostolic principles. Now, when they appointed these seven guys, this is a huge success because immediately, and we'll get to this in a second, immediately the problem is resolved. We never hear about this problem again in the book of Acts. It is completely resolved. Um, The church continues to grow, and I'll get to that in a moment. But two of these seven guys, if you've done your Bible, if if you're doing the reading plan, you've read Tuesdays and Wednesdays, todays, Uh, you've read... Acts chapter 7 and 8, two of these guys that are listed among the seven turn out to be absolutely stellar ministers. Stephen stands up, preaches, has a tremendous effect on the church, changes the whole trajectory of church history, because until Stephen, they were confined in Jerusalem, but after Stephen stands up and preaches, they end up Killing him, stoning him to death. But after that happens, they have to leave. the persecution becomes so great that they have to leave Jerusalem. That's how the church finally spreads outside of Jerusalem. I'm telling you, it changed church history. That's Stephen, one of the seven. Then in Acts chapter 8, we've got this other guy named Philip. He's also one of the seven that were appointed here. He turns out to be an evangelist. He's going to Samaria. There's a revival going on in Samaria. No longer are they in Jerusalem, but now they're out here in Samaria. Just like Jesus said would happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. Philip is one of the ones that first takes the message outside of Judea. He goes to Samaria. There's a big revival happening. God teleports him. I don't know how else to say it. He like just snatches him up, teleports him. Philip's the guy that goes and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, baptizes him. God teleports him back to another place. This is a huge success acts chapter 6 i mean they've really they've really done something god has smiled upon this so before sometimes we think we can get defensive about our methods of doing things and when they has to change we're a little skeptical about it this proves to us that when we are flexible enough to say you know what it's time for a change it's time we may have maxed out our capacity doing it the way we've done it before the mission's not going to change. The message isn't going to change. But let's go to the drawing board on our methods and see if there's a way that we can really improve and maximize the ministry that we're doing. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8 tells me that when it's done correctly, God blesses it. God blesses it. reading my Bible one morning a couple weeks ago, and the Lord helped me understand something that I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to before, but I realized I was kind of backwards on the way I was thinking about it. So, Jeremy, the way I've almost unchallenged thought about about doing the will of God is in order for us to really be about the work of multiplying and being about the work of the church, first we need God to bless us. And if God would just bless us, if God would bless us with the right people, the right personalities, the right giftings, the right finances, the right resources, the right location, the right this the right favor with other people in the community if god would just open up the doors of heaven and bless us with those things then boy oh boy we could really be about the father's business we could really get down to business multiplying the church couldn't we and god spoke to me and said you you've you have it backwards i want you to use what you have multiply what i've given you and then i will open up heaven and bless you because i love blessing obedience And God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. And when we take that as seriously as we can possibly take it, and we get about our Father's business and we say, we're going to not allow anything to stand in the way of us and multiplication. Message is going to stay the same. Mission is going to stay the same. But if we have to change our methods and be uncomfortable and challenge our comfort zone a little bit, I'm going to do it because I recognize that in doing so, I am positioning myself For the blessing of God. There is nothing that God delights in blessing more than obedience. Especially obedience to the number one command that he has given us time and time again in scripture. From Genesis all the way to present day. Be fruitful and multiply. If there were ever a command. If there were ever a mission. That if we are serious about it. That God will guaranteed bless. And pour out his favor on. It's that one. It's that one. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, spread the word. Spread the word. They moved from me to we. From me to we. God blesses multiplication. You see in the Bible where Jesus tells the story of the parable of the talents Talents of gold, he gives them out in different denominations. One guy gets one, one guy gets five, one guy gets ten, different amounts. And who is the one that gets blessed at the end? The one who multiplied what he had. Both of the guys who multiplied what they had were blessed. The guy who held on to what he had and just protected it didn't change the way he was doing anything. He lost it and was cursed, cast into outer darkness. God blesses multiplication and not the other way around. Let me, I know I'm harping on this, but let me stay here for a second because this was this was pivotal for me. God's talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and he says, Abraham, I wrote it down. He says, Abraham, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. You know what that tells me? It tells me that multiplication and fruitfulness is not the blessing. God is the blessing. When we are obedient to him and we take to heart the command he's given us as a church, as people, to be fruitful and multiply, and we see it lived out among us, we get God. And that's the blessing. That's the blessing. It's pretty amazing. Underneath the surface, this is something that I am more passionate about. I I love Acts chapter six. I love seeing in real time what the apostles do with this situation. I love dreaming about what it could mean uh, for us because here's what it means. In Acts chapter two, three, four, and five, you see the word of God going forth in a variety of settings. It's happening in homes, temples, in the marketplace. And as this takes place, as the Word of God increases in all of these different settings, new conditions are created because growth is occurring. Growth always creates new conditions. Go back to the example I used about a growing family at the very beginning of the lesson tonight. Growth always creates new conditions. New conditions always require change. And so that's what we see in Acts chapter 6. As the church grows, the church has to embrace a change in their methods. And when they did it, it allowed the apostles and others to continue to commit the majority of their time and efforts to the ministry of God's word. And that's why verse 7 says, Then the word of God, as this, as this matter was resolved, and there was unity around this change that happened so that there could be peace, and so that the mission could be continued. Verse 7 says, the word of God spread or increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. When the word increases, the church multiplies. That's why we always must look for opportunities to expose people to the word of God. Now, let me get practical for just a minute before we start winding down tonight. Where and how can we increase and spread the Word of God today? Let me give you a few answers to that question, just so that we have some really down-to-earth application of how to actually transfer this out of the pages of the Bible and into our life today. Don't for a second think that this is just about church government and the administration that happens on a church property. It is that, to some degree, but it begins at home. We must open the Word of God together at home. Can I challenge you tonight? If you're not opening the word of God at home, if you have children living in the home, you need to open the word of God with your children. You know why? Not because it just makes common sense to do so, but because Deuteronomy chapter 6 commands you to do so. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall talk of these commandments when you're sitting in your house, when you rise up, when you lay down at night, when you're going about your everyday business, you have the word of God ingrained into every scenario of your life. That is a passage for home. That is not a passage for the corporate church when we gather together like this. That is about mothers and fathers and siblings and brothers and grandparents at home. And we are commanded to do it. And I will tell you that whenever you open the Word of God at home, you want to talk about blessing. You want to talk about results. You want to talk about spiritual growth in your children, in your grandchildren, in your spouse, in yourself. That's why we're doing a reading plan. It's something that's designed so that it's attainable for us to do it, not just you solo, But if you want to do it together, if you want to talk about it at the dinner time, it's definitely attainable to do that. It's what we should be doing. Then the word of God increases inside the four walls of a church sanctuary. We find that in Acts chapter 2. It says they continued in the word. They continued in the breaking of bread. Hebrews chapter 10 says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. When we come together, we let the word of God increase in our midst. It happens in the sanctuary. It happens in Sunday school classrooms during our children's hour on Sunday mornings. Then there's also ongoing Bible. I won't start naming them, but there's ongoing Bible studies that happen happen on off nights of the week that are ongoing even right now as I speak. And the word of God is increasing. And during those settings where Bible studies are happening at different locations and in different places with different groups, the word of God is increasing and the disciples are multiplying, just like in the book of Acts. We would be serious, and we are serious, about the word of God increasing and multiplying and spreading because we recognize it is the clearest mechanism to do what God has us here to do. Can I paint the picture for a second of something that is just a dream? But and I don't want—I I don't mean to upset anybody or to rattle anybody's cage or anything like that. But you know what would be absolutely amazing is if it would be amazing if we had so many Bible studies being taught, people that are not just one time, but relationships that are being forged. People teaching Bible studies to people in their family, people that they work with. And it would just be absolutely amazing if there was such an amount of those going on at any one time in the church that we had to come together, that the leadership of the church had to come together and say, you know what? We kind of have a problem that's a good problem. Here's what what we could do. Let's not do what we're doing right now in the sanctuary on Wednesday night. Instead, let's open up the entire property. We've got tons of rooms all over the property. Let's turn on all the air conditioning, all the heat, whatever we need, and let's let people schedule their Bible studies on a Wednesday night. Let's let the Word of God, instead of just one guy teaching the Word on a Wednesday night, And I know there's a couple other sessions that are age-based, youth and kids, but instead of just one person teaching the entire adult demographic on a Wednesday night, what if there was different studies, different people teaching, exploring God's Word into His marvelous light, search for truth, beyond belief, these Bible studies that are printed out, and does that blow anyone's mind? What kind of increase would that be? Brother Dustin, would you allow that to happen? Yes! (laughs) Yes! Yes. Yes. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. That would be amazing. That would be the embodiment of God's word increasing. Would it change the way we do things? Yes. Would we be better off? I think so. I think so. Because anytime I see the word of God increasing, I see the disciples multiplying. And here's what else I see. And now I'm coming to a close. Sister Kelly, if you come to the keys, give them hope. The very last phrase in verse 7, what does it say? It says, let me read it, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What does that tell me? Sometimes that's one of those phrases we just read past. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's neat. Here's what happened. The word of God continued to increase, and as a result, they broke into a people group, a community, a group of people that was so far unreached. They broke into a whole new neighborhood. They broke into a whole new demographic of people that weren't being ministered to because there was such a show of unity and there was such a show of cooperation. And there were some people that were full of God's spirit that said, you know what, I'm going to stay flexible. I'm not, This isn't something worth getting bent out of shape. Shape over. The mission's the same. The message is the same. The methods changed a little bit. The word continued to increase. The number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly, it said. And not just that they multiplied greatly, but they broke into an entirely new group of people. Wouldn't it be something if your loved one was in that group of people? Wouldn't it be outstanding if there was a revival at the junior high? And some of your grandchildren and children were able to be a part of an earth-shaking, great awakening revival at Poplar Bluff Junior High just because we decided, you know what, we're going to be a serious, no one, no one is going to be more serious than we are about being obedient to the word of God and seeing the word of God increase. I'm going to lay aside any differences I have. I'm going to lay aside any scruples that I may have. I'm going to stay flexible. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to find someone to teach. I'm going to be finding somebody to invest in and that has a compounding effect and the word of God increases and the number of the disciples multiply. And then before we know it, there's a fire burning that's out of control. And this fire is roaring through the junior high, or it's going through Three Rivers College, or it's going through one of the factories or one of the workplaces around here, or it's going through a neighborhood that we've never been able to break into before. It's what I want to see. I told you a minute ago... This is one of the things I'm the most passionate about. I love this passage of Acts chapter 6. I love, I love it because I see something in it. I see a glimmer of something. There's so much about it that I don't recognize. I've never been to Jerusalem. I don't know anybody that speaks Greek. There's so much about it that seems foreign to me. But I see, Sister I see a glimmer of something. And when I put the math to it, and I put my logic to it, I think, how many people, how many of our loved ones Are within reach of a church that behaves the way the Book of Acts church did. That's what I want. I think you want the same thing. I was in prayer this afternoon. The Lord gave me three points for us to pray as we all stand. Now, I want to take us, I want to just, they're going to put, Sister Courtney's going to put it on the screen. But there's just a few things that I want us to pray together. And if you can't see the words, if you come up to the front, you can see the words better funny number one Lord awaken me to an appetite to see the word of God increase see where it starts I said they moved from me to we starts with me number two have us hear your voice and direction more clearly than we ever have and three grant us the wisdom the unity and the boldness to know what to do so that multiplication will continue It's what I want. It's been my prayer all afternoon that I've been meditating on this passage. It's where the Lord directed me. It's where I would direct us tonight. Can we lift up our hands all over this place right now, and can we go to the Lord in prayer? And You can begin to come up around the front. I want us to find a place where we can pray, where we can seek the Lord together. And I want us to take these points of direction to heart tonight. They're going to remain up on the screen. As we take some time on this Wednesday night to pray, can we just say, God... There's nothing that I'm not willing to do to see somebody saved. Lord, there's nothing I'm willing that I'm going to hold back. Lord, I'm going to put it all out there before you right now. Lord, I pray that you would awaken me, God. Awaken something in me. Lord, ignite something in me to have an appetite like I've never had, a desire like I've never had, God, to see your word increase. Lord, to see something new happening in my workplace, in my home. Lord, in my school. Somebody needs to call out the the school system right now in prayer. Somebody needs to make a matter of prayer their workplace or a factory or someplace in this community, a neighborhood. And you need to say, Lord, awaken something in me, God, so that I can find an inroads into a new place. And God, in the middle of all of that, I don't want it to just be my human effort and my flesh driving things, God. But Lord, help me to hear your voice and hear direction from you more clearly than I've ever heard you before in my life, God. Lord, I want to be led by your spirit. Lord, lead me to somebody that is so hungry for Lead me to somebody that wants an answer to a question that the Word of God will give them. Lord, grant us the wisdom.